Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Diana Lindsay of Healing Circles, hosted by Michael Lerner. This conversation was recorded from a webinar and is part of the Learning Community series. Well, Diana Lindsay, welcome back to the Learning Community at the New School. Thank you, Michael. So fun to be with you. Wonderful. And I asked you to sing at the start, but then I found, and I want you to, but then I found a, a prayer that I wanted to start with this morning. And this is from a book, my handshake, so I'll hold it up, but it'll shake a little. Uh, a book by Neil Douglas Klotz, who some of you have heard of. It's called Prayers of the Cosmos, Reflections on the Original Meaning of Jesus' Words. That's what it looks like. And so uh, he translated from the Aramaic uh, the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes. And the deal is that Aramaic was the language that everybody spoke when Jesus was alive. And in fact, uh, we learned from Erwin last week, Erwin Keller, the rabbi, that Hebrew then was not spoken except by the priests and, and a few others, but the language was Aramaic. And so when Jesus taught, he would have taught in Aramaic. And I'm just going to, uh, Douglas Klotz gives you the sound of the Aramaic, so I'm just going to read a, a few lines of the sound. Bushwaya Natkwashmak Tete Malkuthak. Those are the first three lines. And of course, the Lord's Prayer in English, I'm just going to read so we all know what we're talking about here. This is the King James Version Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's Matthew. Uh, in the King James Version. Now, here is Douglas Klotz's uh, translation from the Aramaic. O birther, father, mother of the cosmos, you create all that moves in light. O thou, the breathing life of all, creator of the shimmering sound that touches us, respiration of all worlds, we hear you breathing in and out in silence, source of sound in the roar and the whisper, in the breeze and the whirlwind, we hear your name, radiant one, you shine within us, outside us, even darkness shines when we remember. Name of names, 
Our small identity unravels in you, and you give it back as a lesson. Wordless action, silent potency, where ears and eyes awaken, there heaven comes. O birther, father, mother of the cosmos. So, I may read more of this to you at some point, but um, just imagine that that was the way we said the Lord's Prayer. Just imagine what that would have meant. And by the way, uh, Neil Douglas Klotz has an extraordinary afterward in which she points out that in the time of Jesus and for 300 years afterward, there was no distinction between Christians and Jews. That the, the word in the Bible, Jew, is actually a mistranslation. It should be Judean, which is somebody who lived in that part of the world. And so um, for a very long time, uh, uh, you know, obviously Jesus didn't plan to start a different religion. And so for a very long time, uh, there was a unity, a, a broad unity of experience and reflection. Uh, and in the Aramaic, that the language which was the common language was a language of, oh, mother, father, creator. So just imagine if that was the tradition of the Bible that we had inherited. Just imagine. So, Diana, here we are. <laughs> here we are. I can see we're going to be going into places today, Michael. <laughs> Would you sing for us? I will. This is a song we like to sing at Healing Circles Langley. And I think it takes the enormity of what you just read, the birther of worlds, the mystery, the magic, and it puts us inside ourselves to be that responsive to each of us. So I'll give it a try. Wonderful. Love, prepare me to be a sanctuary, kind and gentle. Tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Oh, beautiful. Can you do that one more time? You know, I tried singing with you, but it began to break up here. I don't know. Yeah, try it just one more time for us. Too much lag to sing yeah. with. <laughs> yeah. But try you can all sing at home uh, with me. Yeah. That would be lovely. Love, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Kind and gentle, tried and true, whoops, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. 
Love prepare me to be a sanctuary, kind and gentle, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Wow. I'd never sung that alone before. I always kind of followed along, but I thought I could manage it. Well, Diana, it's such a blessing to be here with you. And um, for those who don't know you and may not know me very well either, um, how should we describe you? How would you describe yourself? Oh, dear, Michael. (laughs) I have lived many lives. I've been blessed to live many lives. And in this particular phase of my life, um, I describe myself as co-founder of Healing Circles Langley and Healing Circles Global. But really, I am just one who would like to be a living sanctuary for others. And perhaps that's a good place to start. Mm, What a lovely place. So, yes, you are the co-founder of Healing Circles Langley and of Healing Circles Global. And maybe a nice place to start would be when we first met. It was a miracle. Mm. It's how I think of it. Mm. Kelly and I uh, had just come through the experience of my recovery from stage four lung cancer. And we can talk more about that whole process. But as, as I was recovering, people came and wanted to talk with us. And we had our living room open for people. And then we had our phone line open for people. And then we were asked to speak. And all the time we were trying to figure out just what was it? Why was I here? We didn't feel like we really knew that answer, but we thought it was worth the conversation with others to see if they could ignite within themselves the kind of healing power that had worked in me. And so as we spoke, people said, well, you should write a book. And we were just in the process of doing that and and just beginning to give a, a short talk that we gave at the Whidbey Institute, which is where we met you because you heard that talk. The interesting thing was the very day before, the building that I'm currently sitting in, which had been our office um, for a company we had founded, we were just transitioning. We had closed the company and we wanted to spend our time having these circles of two with people or circles of four with their caregiver. And we thought this would be a nice place to, to do it. And we were gonna rent the downstairs. And Kelly came upstairs and he said, you know what? We need to dedicate this whole building to healing. And I had wanted to give back to the, com- to the community that had supported me. So we said, yes, we will do this. We will dedicate this building to healing. 
And that was the idea that took us all the way to dinner. And then the next morning, we were the keynote speaker. And by noon, we were talking with you and we said, we have this idea. And you said, I have this idea. It's called Healing Circles. And we partnered. Now, if you, the amount of time it takes to go from idea to working with the leading person in the world on the subject, usually it's a lot longer than uh, 12 hours. <laughs> but that's what happened. And we have been partners in thought, partners in crime ever since. Hmm. Well, I would, I would beg to differ on the leading person in the world, but <laughs> we'll let that one go. Um, but what, um, what I can say for sure is that I had the idea for Healing Circles, which as you know, it actually came out of uh, uh, conversations with my colleague and yours, Rachel Naomi Remen, because we had done the Cancer Help Program together for, at that point, 35 years. And uh, how long ago did we meet? How many years ago was that? Six. 2006? No, we... No, no, no. six years ago, 2014, right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so six years ago, uh, it was about, we'd been doing the Cancer Health Program for 28 years. And Rachel had always said that she wished we could put the Cancer Health Program in a box so that it could be shared widely. And so the idea for Healing Circles really came out of the idea of putting the Cancer Health Program in a box, seeing if we could figure out what was core to the Cancer Health Program. And Rachel had always said what she thought was core is that we heal in community, that it is in community that we heal. And so I began to go around and talk to the centers that had started um, cancer health programs based on the Commonweal Cancer Health Program and done them for at least 20 years. And that was uh, Kalanush in Vancouver, British Columbia, and Harmony Hill in Union, Washington, and Smith Center for Healing and the Arts in Washington, D.C., and Commonweal. And uh, there were actually a couple of others that I didn't know about at that point. There was one in Texas. There was one in France. There may still be some I don't know about, but those were the ones that we knew about. And so I had the idea but I will tell you, Diana Lindsay, that if I hadn't met you, I am not at all sure that that idea would have been translated into action because it's one thing to have the idea, it's another to find a partner, one of whose great gifts is manifestation, is the ability to take an idea and turn it into reality. And so you started with Healing Circles Langley, which, is a completely extraordinary place and really, in many respects, the flagship and training center for our global work. And then we began to build out into Healing Circles Global. So what would you add to that? Well, uh, that it's been co-created each step of the way. Um, I saw a, a word actually, Michael, that's that manifestation, reify, to make mm. real, mm. to take an idea and to make it real. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I think the beautiful thing that happened here within the Whidbey community was that there was talent here. There were people who were good at taking ideas into reality. I, I know that I think Charles is on the call and Betsy McGregor, who were part of that, that team. And I think the I, part of reifying something is just the belief that it's possible mm-hmm. and that you don't have to have all the answers that you begin. And the team of people that we pulled together as our thought circle listened, shared their ideas, and then they turned to me at the point that I started making too many PowerPoints and strategic plans. And they just said, no, Diana, just go, just start, Mm -hmm. and then respond, respond to the needs of the community. And it actually, that one piece of advice transformed my life, my whole life, because from then on, every, every person that walked in the door, every thought I had, everyone I encountered everywhere, I saw as uh, messages that I, it was only mine to respond to and that they were teachers. And so each one that came in the door were teachers. They were teaching us about what need was. They were taught, teaching us about who they were. They were teaching us about how healing flowed through them. And so we, it just kept evolving so quickly um, because it, this became a place for people to serve and as we've talked many times, the human drive for meaning and purpose is so strong and it's so healing. And simply to provide a place where that can have fruit, uh, perhaps that's the biggest healing of all. Mm. So, Mother Teresa says that loneliness is the great poverty of the West. Mm-hmm. And you've often talked about um, uh, how much... Uh, how much loneliness there is, and particularly under COVID skies, where uh, there's so much uh, isolation. Uh, And indeed, that's why we have felt that this moment is the moment to really open up healing circles uh, to everyone we can reach who finds our particular way of doing circles to be useful to them. Yeah. Yeah. I knew that for myself because when I was diagnosed, I think every cancer patient faces this, you you're, you just are pushed off a cliff at that moment of diagnosis and you fall flat on the ground and, you know, really it occurs to you very quickly, I may not get up. <laughs> I may not get up. And that happened to me as it happens to everyone. And then there's that dreaded moment, even if you get yourself to hands and knees where you, you have to tell people and you can't imagine that because you're pretty sure that even though you're on hands and knees, you're going to be right back down the next time you have to tell that story. And because we live in a community in which we were blessed to have many friends, there were a lot of people to tell. And I simply could not face it one by one. 
And so very practically, I invited them to an open house at our house, thinking in two hours, I could tell everybody and then I could go back down to my prone (laughs) position. But when it came time to actually write the email, um, I, I wrote the great South we'd be loving, which ended up attracting 125 people to come. And in that time where I thought I would be fairly immobile, instead the presence and the love of others had me singing and dancing for six hours and feeling better at the end of it than I had felt in the beginning. And the day after I had the awareness to realize that, that somehow there had been this healing intervention where you could be not well and then well, and there was no medical intervention in between. There had just been love. And so the next morning when they told me that there was no cure, that I had only months to live, um, in my mind, I'm not sure I had the courage to voice it to my doctor yet. I go, but I had a love in, (laughs) right? It's not necessarily a logical thought in the face of what was in front of me, but it buoyed me up. It gave me some strength. And throughout the course of my illness, I felt the strength of that community. I felt the strength of my family. And above all, I felt the strength of my husband, Kelly. And there were many pieces of the story and we're going to maybe get to one of these, which was the inner healing process. But that outer support, I also knew was critical. And when we started to tell the story, my heart was broken by the number of people who said, but I don't have a Kelly. I don't have that network of friends. I'm alone. I have a cat. And that weighed on me. Because while I couldn't say that I could help you heal, what I could say is I will support you. And so that just felt like a gesture that we could do. We could provide that place for anyone at first on South Whidbey that needed it. And in the process of doing that, I, I started to do research on social support. And I thought that, you know, this might just be me. <laughs> this, this might just be the path of an extrovert. Uh, this might just be the path of somebody who likes to sing and dance with others. This might just be Whidbey. But as I did the research, and Michael, you had a beautiful chart that uh, was part of your original training, and it, it tracked a long-standing uh, survey of a study of nurses in Alameda County. Mm -hmm. And in it, it showed what contributed to longevity in cancer patients amongst all of the other things that people choose to do, like diet, like exercise, like supplements, like sleep. And diet and exercise were a 40% gain. Supplements were very low. Sleep was pretty good. And social support was 70%. Of all those things we talk about all the time in the press and amongst each other, social support was more powerful. And yet we weren't talking about it at all 
at the time. The research was just starting to burgeon. And, but I took that as, wow, that's my goal. Because what they didn't really specify is what is good social support. And the research was quickly demonstrating that bad social support, that wasn't any good. It wasn't just the presence of people. It had to be good social support. And I think really that's what the whole Healing Circles movement is about, is to try to understand as humans how we can really be of use to each other along our own healing journeys. Mm. Yeah, just briefly mention that yesterday I did a healing circle for a friend in Portland who has a difficult cancer um, situation. I think she's on today. And, um, and it was remarkable because uh, she had this beautiful group of friends but they were new to circle work and new to circle work for someone with an advanced cancer. And so they kind of assumed, you know, you have an advanced cancer and maybe they didn't know, but some of them thought maybe this is, this is it, you know, maybe we're kind of gathering to say how much we love our friend and, but we don't, we don't know how to hope for the future, you know, in, in just in terms of physical recovery. So part of what I needed to do when I joined them was to say to them, you know what, uh, this hope and prayer that our friend has to do what you've done, Diana, to do really well, you know, how many years are, are you now from? 14. 14 years out from being told you had months to live, right? And uh, I, I, I said to them, you know what? There's a strong literature on complete spontaneous remissions from advanced cancers. These things exist. You know, there are, you know, there are uh, a strong literature. But more than that, even if somebody doesn't get a complete spontaneous remission, there are hundreds of people that I've met in the cancer help program who've lived far beyond what was expected. So if you see it as a distribution curve, uh, the curve when the oncologist tells you what he anticipates, he's giving you a median, which is pushed to the left by all the people with no good medical care, no social support, who are depressed and may not even want to stay around. Whereas the kind of people who feel some inner locus of control, feel that in some way they can matter in their own lives and really want to engage with the effort to live, where are they? They're not at the median. You know, we don't know if they're the top quartile or top 10% or whatever it is. And so to have a, to have a perspective that whatever else, you're not going to limit the degree of healing that is possible for you. Not only uh, you know, emotional, mental, and spiritual healing, but physical healing, that you're not going to limit that, that you're not going to say, I, you know, I, I accept the prognosis. You know, you, you can hear the diagnosis, mm -hmm. but not to accept the prognosis. And so in any case, and then we talked about how to do healing energy. Um, but I think that awakening people to the possibilities of deep intentional healing is a profound part of what healing circles can do, you know? And really, 
in many ways, that's simply done through this expression, as you say, a love-in, a healing circle is in a sense a love-in, and an opportunity uh, which we can talk more about because we have such a good methodology, an opportunity not to get in each other's way and an opportunity to do this in a way that really maximizes what each person can find. So, But say more uh, about the inner journey that, uh, that this love-in launched for you. How, what was it actually like at a more granular level uh, to discover how you could deeply contribute to healing yourself? You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Diana Lindsay and host Michael Lerner. I will give it a try. Okay. You can walk me through. Um, so I, I got you to Monday of the week after the initial scans and tests. This is when I made it to the specialist at Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And the, the report was bad. You know, based on the original scans, there no hope, no treatment. And then you begin this process of more and more tests. And each test came back worse. I had uh, a big mass in my left lung, but I also had masses in my right. I had it in my lymph nodes and the mediastinal area. I had it in my brain. And there was a good possibility I had it in the fluid around my heart. So, you know, day by day, I'm just getting bad news. But I remembered an experience that I had had when I had had cancer 20 years before. That cancer I had discovered through a dream. And I wasn't really into dream work. I just felt like it was important. And I had used dreams when I'd gone into therapy in my 40s. And so I took that dream back to my therapist and she said, Diana, you need to get to a doctor. So I went to one doctor and he goes, oh, it's nothing. And I go, hmm, but I had a dream. I need to keep looking. So I go to the second doctor and that doctor says, oh, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. And I said, no. I've had a dream. <laughs> mm-hmm. if, if these tests that you're about to do come back positive, uh, where would you send me? And I walked out the door and just called that person, not even waiting. And that person immediately identified the cancer and said, get to the hospital now. So I, I knew that the body could convey important information. And that particular cancer, we caught it stage one, stage zero, And I was fine, but it was in a complicated place, a lot of surgical complications, and it took quite a while to get through them. And one of them, one of the issues was simply, it it was colon cancer, too close to the bladder, issues getting catheters out, all that kind of thing. And they put you through a terrible protocol, and I'm lying in bed one night, and I'm going, oh, you know. I don't know that I can do this. And I sense in that sort of blurry place where you're in a twilight zone, I sense the presence of a a woman at the foot of my bed. And I go, oh my gosh, you're my bladder. Now, (laughs) I had not been in the habit of 
calling figures on my bed organs in my body. I don't even know where that came from. But she goes, yes, I am. And I said, you know, being a mom, I could take a look at her, see how how exhausted she was, how tired she was. And as a mom, I did what I would do if it was my child. I just went and held her. And I said, I, I can see that you just really can't do this anymore tonight. And I'm with you. Let's take a break. But can we make a deal? In the morning, can we be done with this? And she said, deal. And in the morning, we were done with it. Even though we had tried weeks to be done with it, that moment changed. So I thought that that experience was just plain weird. I didn't tell anybody about it. You know, I'm a very logical person. How could that have any effect at all? But in the moment of my greatest need, which was that week after diagnosis, I'm looking for anything in my toolkit I've ever experienced. And I go, uh, how about lung woman? <laughs> can, I, can I go do that again? And I could. I could see lung woman stretched out on a tarmac with emergency helicopters in the background. And I do the same thing I did with bladder woman. I run and I hold her. But she's underneath a giant boulder which immediately represented the size, the mass of the lung cancer. And I said, I, it's too heavy. I can't lift it on my own, but I can stay with you and hold you until the emergency team shows up, thinking this is the doctor, the medical team that's going to do all this for me. And then out of my body sprung a circle of 12 women. And they said, we are the healthy organs of your body and we will wait with you. Now, years later, I took Qigong. Years later, I learned about the Chinese meridians. There are 12 of them corresponding to each organ. And I think that circle was, you know, that sense that not only are we gonna wait for those helicopters, but we're also going to use the body to support itself. And we're going to use the strength that exists in some of those organs to help balance the distress that others are in. And so throughout that week, I kept going into this space and getting these just brief images, but every single one showed me getting better. And, I, and that was incongruous with what my scans were saying. But it gave me courage, I think, to say, I don't know where healing is going to come from. I'm going to take the pill they're suggesting. But I'm also going to try for this mind-body connection. I have absolutely nothing to lose. And that was my, you know, my first beginnings into it. And I thought of it as, here we are, <laughs> body in distress, me in distress, needing to work together, no clue how, no tradition of how, no practice in how. And so we're going to be beginners at this. We just need to find a language. And in fact, we had one. You know, it was the realization that we had this imagery as our language. And at first, I felt like, hmm, well, 
that's a pretty slim thread <laughs> to base a, a, a miracle healing on. I can't even always remember these images. I can't always remember my dreams. I can't always interpret them. You know, how are we going to do this? And I go, well, you know, I had learned French and Spanish and Italian. It's like a foreign language. And at the beginning, you just have bonjour, you know, and then you move on to comment allez-vous. And so that's what I began to do with my body bit by bit. And when we've spoken before of this, you've spoken about how you came increasingly to trust the guidance that you were getting. So I think trust is a really critical issue in this. I feel like it's my belief anyway, that we all have some access to this. We all dream for one. And I felt like this meditative process was basically lowering my brain waves to the theta level which is where you come up from sleep into when you dream. And so dreams have a particular quality, you know, that is lots of strange things coming together into a whole. Whereas when I'm coming down, they were a little more organized and therefore more able to be remembered. So that was a wonderful way, but because it's coming through the mind, I felt, well, there's the risk that the mind is fooling itself. The mind is saying, here I am bathed in light, I'm healed. Um, so that was, a, that was something I had to work on. Just which messages are, am I going to trust? Which feel authentic to me? And I found that the difference was whether or not I was surprised. Um, you know, if it was an image that my intellectual mind could conjure, I didn't trust it too well. <laughs> and if it was just a surprise, I did not expect this. I did not expect to be here. I did not expect what happened. Uh, then I would, then I would perk up and pay attention. You know, Brother David Steindlrast, who's a wonderful Christian mystic, says his favorite name for God is surprise. Oh, not beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. It said it's the only thing that doesn't limit God. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you came to the sense that what you were really going to pay attention to was uh, when, when an image surprised you. But you were also making decisions about medical treatments where you weren't always following what the doctors were suggesting. And you were, just as in your first diagnosis, you kept looking for somebody who would listen. Uh, in the second diagnostic process, you were often making choices and pushing for things that were not what the doctors had in mind. Yes, and that was an interesting journey in and of itself. I have a wonderful doctor. Um, and he himself based his first decision on an intuitive basis. Mm -hmm. He recommended a first line of a, a new targeted therapy as a first line of defense. It would take seven years before the FDA approved that drug for first line defense. And it is. So, uh, which was Tarsib at the time. Right. And um, 
I tease him because I say, you know, that was an intuitive choice. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, the other options weren't good. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, he says that falls within the realm of his logic. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, he took a look at me and he said, you don't look like my typical patient. And he said, I'm not going to pull you down. You're still traveling the world. You're still teaching around the world. What, you know, I'm not going to put you into chemo was basically his choice. And so he gave me this targeted therapy. So I had to go through this switch in my mind that said, you just told me that you don't have a cure. And so I figured from that, therefore, I would have to get us where I wanted to go, you know, Proverbially, if we were going from uh, Seattle to New York City, you know, he's just getting me over the Cascades. (laughs) And I would have to come up with every single tank of gas to get us the whole rest of the way. But but then I realized, no, he's going to come along the whole way. And and he did. But very quickly, we started getting results that put me all the way on the edge of the curve very quickly. And so when you, the more you start getting to the edge of the curve, there's no evidence, right? You're, you're in the realm of anecdote pretty quickly. So I felt that, although I really trusted my doctor, although I really trusted the tumor board, that my body deserved a place at that tumor board because it had knowledge that they didn't have and they did not have a massive evidence on their side. So I felt like I was going to co-create this healing path. And what gave me the interest confidence in that was what started to happen. So at first I would just see single images. But then as I started to enter it every morning, every afternoon, and every night, it, it turned into video. And it kept changing its scale. So it started with these women dancing on this rock, which I think symbolized the lung. And then it quickly was moving down into more of a cellular level. The dancers were popping individual cells, which were releasing uh, what looked like bubbles in my dream, whole caverns full of bubbles. And I'm, I'm in an airport and I walk by a scientific magazine and on the cover is the picture of apoptosis what happens to the cancer cell when it explodes it's a water cell it explodes there's just all these little bubbles that come out and i go that's what's happening in my meditations and then i go look up the article you know and it describes apoptosis i never heard of it and then i have but meanwhile my scan showed the tumor had already gone in half So then I'm spending this time trying to get the bubbles out of there. I get this feeling that the most important thing is to rid the body of what I now know are blebs. Well, the research that shows how the blebs themselves can cause metastasis if they're not out of there, that didn't come for a few years. So the image was, talk about surprise, this pole vaulter who comes with this big pole, plants it in my lung, and all of the bubbles, you know, evacuate out by it. And years later, I asked the head of lung biology at the University of Washington, 
what was that? And he goes, it looks like hyaluronin, which is the protein chain that macrophages come in to eat the blebs, you know, and he showed me the scientific picture of it. So each time I kept having imagery that would then be shown in my next scan to be accurate. I started having image where the dancers couldn't work anymore. They were on just like lava. And I think that that was the moment where it started to turn to scar tissue. And when we had surgery later, in fact, there was a lot of scar tissue. And then I had imagery of hands massaging the lymph nodes. And the next scan showed that the lymph node involvement was gone. And so I started to trust. And when the cancer came back, I had a dream that it was going to come back and that the answer was a big streak of lightning. So when it did in fact come back and the doctor said chemo, I said, no, I've, I've had this dream that we need lightning. I think we need radiation. And he goes, no, 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 no. You have a systemic disease. Radiation is when it's still in the barn. Your horse has long since left. Um, and so we said, okay. And we went and took our canoe and went canoeing down a river and we capsized and we got ourselves out of the river and we make it to shore and the phone rings and it's the doctor. And he says, you know, I was talking to my partner and maybe it's not so far-fetched. If you can find somebody who's willing to do it, I would support you. And I found a doctor at the very beginning of uh, a, a procedure that is now common called CyberKnife or very targeted radiation. And it was new, insurance didn't pay for it. Um, but he said, you know what? You're already on the far branch of a tree. You are already here. I trust that, that we can help you in this. So that decision turned out to be really pivotal. I think if I had done chemo at that point, I wouldn't have made it. Um, because I still had a working immune system. And when it came back again, I also had a dream. And this time the dream said, uh, wait, watch and wait. It had an alligator coming out of the bushes and it had a family of otters. It had a wise owl eagle and it had two Clydesdale horses blocking the ability of the alligator to get out. And I thought, those horses are the Qigong and Reiki that Kelly and I had begun to learn. And I said, I think we can do it with that. And so we, we talked the doctor into watch and wait, and he was willing to give us two months. And then he kept scanning me and there was no growth. And we got nine months that way, which was exactly the same amount we got from CyberKnife by the way, one costing 100000 and one costing nothing. And then the cancer came back again and again. I had another dream, and it said surgery. And the doctor came in and said, your cancer is back. I think we can try surgery. So um, it was... You know, it was an interplay between me and the doctors. It was not saying, no, no, you're wrong and I'm right. 
it was definitely a, a co-creation, a co-evolution of thinking. But I felt like my imagery um, was my body talking and I felt that it, my only job was to give it voice. So ultimately, yes, I did trust. You know, it's so interesting because I imagine there are many people listening to us who really get this, but there are others for whom it seems or who will hear it. It seems so far out, yeah. so far out. And what I want to add to what you're saying uh, from, you know, 40 years of following this work is, first of all, that... Um, the power of the imagination in healing is really extraordinary. And doctors like Marty Rossman, MD, who've written about imagery and healing, um, you know, what, can one, what one can harness um, is really extraordinary. The second thing is uh, the reality of intuitive, uh, intuitive medicine uh, or medical intuition. And that also I have witnessed firsthand working with uh, physicians and other colleagues who are medical intuitives. And it's really stunning, as, as you know, Diana, it's completely stunning that, I mean, many physicians, like your doctor, use intuition. But the thing about intuition, like imagery, is it can be trained. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more you train it, the more you can trust it. And so I have watched uh, physicians who have developed uh, medical intuition as a skill gain more and more and more confidence. Uh, uh, very objective physicians who have, you know, kept their feet on the ground and are excellent conventional doctors, but they've just realized that rather than running a battery of 25 tests, maybe they'll do one test. Or maybe they'll even recommend something they haven't even tested, but it isn't going to do any harm. And, you know, it, uh, so, you know, uh, somebody thinks something is viral and it turns out to be bacterial and they saw that it was probably bacterial or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me at the start, this was virgin territory. I mean, I've always had an open mind about integrative therapies. But over time, I have just come to recognize that what you're saying is actually true and that uh, the material science world has so little place for that because we don't understand it. And, you know, I mean, we know that imagery works, but we don't understand why, you know, mm -hmm. we don't understand. And the third thing we haven't even talked about, although you referred to it now with with uh, Reiki and Qigong. So there's imagery, there's intuition, and the third is there's energy medicine. And so you were combining all three of those. By the end, yeah. By the end, yeah. 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 You know, Michael, it, obviously it's hard for me, well, it, it was hard for me to tell this story, right? <laughs> it just was not part of a Stanford-trained person mm -hmm. uh a very logical it was very hard for kelly kelly was trained as a biologist uh you know we did not come from a mystical tradition we did not come from an intuitive tradition but we had 
had three decisions in our life that we made from pure intuition and they were our best decisions. And we even commemorated best decision day. And one was the day we decided to get married Mm -hmm. by walking down a trail and looking into each other and knowing, Oh my God, that's what we're going to do. And we walked down a trail a few years later and we decided to start a family. Mm -hmm. And then we came to Whitby and we bought a house in a day. And figured out later how you'd make a living. And figured out later how we do it all. So we had had experience in our lives of trusting intuition, but those were hunches. You know, there was no training in that. That just kind of bubbled up. And so I felt like the word you used, I had to get better than just a hunch because the way the mind works, um, this you know, what we used to call right brain, I think that's simplistic now, but this intuition, we have two types of brains. We have the slow brain um, that is our thinking brain that uses up a whole bunch of energy. Mm -hmm. And so the brain also has this more fast serving up of insight. And the insight can be, and usually is, very holistic. It can see parts that the intellectual brain, it can see holes when the intellectual brain only sees parts. But the problem is, it's also what serves up all of our bias, all of our habits. So it's a force for good and it's a force for evil. Mm-hmm. It, you know, intuition that that serving up isn't always good. And so I felt as an observer of it that I had to, that's why I had to Think about that authenticity. Is it just serving up a prejudice on my part? Or am I actually willing to sit and listen for a deeper kind of message? Now, one thing I'll say about the shift from imagery to Qigong is when I was practicing this, and this is a desperate woman, right? I'm a desperate woman. What do I have to lose? And also, there was no evidence for me. I think it might have been very different for me if, you know, it was a truly evidence-based path for me to get to well. But when there isn't, when you are way out on the curve, um, you know, that becomes a different question. The other thing that gets there is I go, well, so the doctor gave me a 1% chance of making it to five years. And at some point in it, and I just told this story to those who were being trained, at some point I was able to shift the, you're going to die with 99% certainty. I was able to shift it to, how do I get into the 1% club? And what I realized is you don't get into the 1% club with 50% solutions, right? If everybody did it, if there was a known path, if it was evidence, you know, I wouldn't be in the place I was in. I also recognized that I couldn't, in the amount of time they had left, get a complete microbiology degree and a complete uh, extracellular matrix degree. And, uh, you know, I had to trust that to the world's best minds. And they didn't have a solution. So I figured, you know, I was not going to get there logically. I, w- I needed to bring other powers to be. And Marty Rossman actually was the one that ignited this for me. I listened to his tape 
Mm. And that was my first entry um, in there. Mm. So there's much more we could pursue in these lines, but let's talk about Kelly now. Mm -hmm. So Kelly, you know, I just alluded to really fought this sense of hope that I had. I really understand it. As a caregiver, you're faced with all the data and it's hard not to just believe it and be overwhelmed. And I, I did the same with him. I understand it. He really did not understand this imagery and he really didn't understand the energy work. But someone taught us a very simple piece of energy work very early on and the cough that I had incessantly after people did this stopped. And so that was Kelly's first shred of effectiveness, of of evidence that enabled him to kind of relax a little bit. And at the end, what for him as a caregiver, it said, ah, there's something I can do. I can do this energy practice with her and she'll feel better and I'll feel better because we both would have, will have relaxed. And we thought that was good enough. And what's more, we thought it was hysterical. So we laughed a lot about it. <laughs> we didn't have any faith in it, but we thought, well, this is curious. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> and, but by the end, Kelly became a Reiki master and he devoted himself full time to becoming part of my healing team. And he was wonderful. So he got cancer just before we started healing circles. And that one was a stage one cancer. We thought we were done with it. And he had had success talking to his body to get through pain, talking through his body to avoid painkillers, um, talking to his um, body to not bleed in surgery when they had four pints of blood ready and thinking they would need it. So he had his own trail of his own success, but then he's diagnosed with glioblastoma, stage four, absolutely horrific diagnosis. Again, no cure, but really nothing on the horizon. There wasn't that pill that I got to have. The standard of care is harsh. Um, No other trials have shown any promise. So it it was a different beast. And Kelly had the same experience I had that in my Qigong classes, he started entering this world. He called it the farmhouse. And in the months before he was diagnosed, that farmhouse, which at first was just doors and windows that he opened and closed, started to be inhabited by a monster in the attic. And then he ends up with a big giant mass in his head. So that was a very telling um, imagery. So Kelly did not have to go through the doubt that I went through because he'd already been through it with me. He was ready to throw himself into this, what he called at first healing by metaphor. Um, He used his Reiki He would take individual images that would come to him. And he always put the faith in the body. He would say, 
you know how to do this. You know how to restructure these brain pathways. This is an element that needs to find an escape route. You know that. But I'm going to provide perhaps this metaphor field that will help you. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Diana Lindsay and host Michael Lerner. And using that, he again was able to have a lot of success. When he started the chemo and he had a lot of nausea, he was able to go into this place and reframe that story. And the nausea ended the next day. He was able to stop. He nearly died from a pulmonary embolism and he had these big massive clots and they couldn't bust them. And he was able to, to keep it under control without meds. But at the end, of course, he couldn't heal himself. But what this inner place became for him was sanctuary. And I too found that. I didn't go looking inside for sanctuary. I went looking inside for healing, but I found it. Marty Rossman suggests that you find your own healing glen, he called it, and see if there's a guide. And a guide came to me that she, uh, I called her a goddess. I didn't have any framework to put her in, but she was all love, all forgiveness, all compassion. And when I needed comfort, I would go and be held by her. What did she look like? Well, that I think is super interesting because I think like the stories of life after life, you know, they look like what is in you to see. And as, as a child, I love the Greek myths. I'm named Diana, you know, <laughs> and I learned them all. And so she had a very Greek goddess feel. She Which was, goddess? Uh, Which goddess do you think she was? Well, I did not name her. She was, um, in, in, she was the proportion of a Greek hero, which oh. is actually just one foot taller than a human. I think yeah. that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She could hug me. I, I could feel very closed in her arm. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it just, and I didn't try to connect her to any other structure, mm -hmm. any other tradition. Um, in retrospect, I would probably call her Aphrodite because she was just love. That's just who she was. So I think it's very, very interesting that Kelly, this monster in the attic, transformed, kept transforming and became the wise man. He called it W-H-Y-S. <laughs> and he acknowledged that as human beings, we don't really get anywhere close to the real sense of why. So this guy kept saying, doesn't matter, doesn't, don't, don't worry about it. You're not going to really get to the essence of why. Um, but he turned into the creature from the shape of water, you know, that wonderful, beautiful, amphibious, he, she creature that heals, that has the power of healing. Um, like the mother, father, creator. Yes. Or that, that, that place where the masculine and feminine meet and, uh, yeah. yeah. Just like your poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
the other interesting thing that happened to Kelly was as he, so I think Kelly's journey was all about love. Hmm. He, um, he really felt that his job was to love the cancer. And so this creature that at first was chained, that was just this nebulous monster, gets transformed into this total healing and loving creature. And then someone else shows up. It's a young girl. She's called Elena. She's his cancer too. But he can't stand having this other in his inner world. And she becomes beloved. And so then glio shows up. So glio is the cancer, glioblastoma. And again, he integrates glio and glio becomes loved. Glio is uh, Huck Finn. And Elena is this beautiful young Latina girl. Um, each time he keeps, he brings in Timur. Timur is his tumor. And again, Timur is like Tom Sawyer. He gets brought in and he gets loved. And by the end, he's bringing in everybody around us with cancer. He's bringing them into his inner sanctuary to love them. I remember so vividly when my wife, Cheryl, was with you all and she had a a breast cancer. And I remember Kelly saying to her, Cheryl, why don't you just give me your cancer. And you also for another friend of yours, he did yeah. the same, right? Yeah. So, so this, I mean, I just want to say, and uh, is, is Kelly's healing bridges uh, thing still up? Yeah. Uh, because um, what Kelly did uh, with healing bridges was just extraordinary. I mean, he blogged every caring bridge. Yeah. He blogged every day. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so all those who loved him got to share in this amazing journey he was on. And it became, you know, this farmhouse overflowed with people, and then it mm-hmm. becomes a lawn, and then it becomes an amethyst lake. It kept increasing in its dimensions as my inner world did. My inner world had a river that I could go to to clear the cancer out. It had a viewpoint that I could go to to ask my questions. It had a meadow that others could gather in and support me. Um, And so I just say that for those that begin this journey, you know, welcome all of the people that show up. Welcome each of the places that show up. And when there's a daily practice of it, it just keeps getting richer. What I realized after it was that um, when I wasn't practicing as much, I lost it. My intellectual mind came in and, you know, rested back control. And it was hard to get back to this intuitive place. So I understand when people say, but I don't do that. Well, yeah, because the busyness of life is so present. But I say, yeah, but when you need it, (laughs) it's there for you. And that's what happened for Kelly. But what I then transitioned to, because it was a more, quote, reliable place I could always get to, Mm -hmm. was this inner energy world. Mm -hmm. My Qigong meditations, I could could run 24-7. I didn't have to have that 
that element of waiting for the image um, and, you know, hoping it would come. Isn't that interesting? I, I wonder if that is true for most people or whether that's just the way you're constructed. I, I would imagine that different people are constructed differently in terms of ongoing access to imagery versus energy you know, healing. That's just a guess. But I would think that some people would be able to sustain that. I certainly know for myself that when life brings me close to the edge, there's this sense of an awakening and, you know, a presence that I don't otherwise have. And that how easy it is, as you've said, to, to, to go away from that. Um, but I think for myself that intuition seems to be always present for me. Um, and in many ways, it's about my work. It's about, um, I mean, I just, the way I've worked for 40 years is that, you know, people say, how do you find these people? And what it is really is I don't go looking for them. I recognize them. You know, there's this like when you and Kelly decided to get married and looked at each other. And I, I just seem to recognize people with whom I'm supposed to work or who are going to become really beloved friends. And there's just this recognition. And I think for me, what happens, particularly with beloved friends, is that that is one of my strongest portals to the divine. You know, when the Sufis say the friend with a small f leads to the friend with a big F, meaning the divine. Uh, and Plato said the same thing, you know, that, um, that through loving human friends, beloveds, uh, it actually opens us to the divine. And, and um, so there, you and I both know this, there are an infinite number of paths um, to this. So um, how long ago did Kelly die now? Three months. And what has the last three months been like for you? Uh, it grief is a it, it's an amazing process. It is so um, present. It is so varied. Has been my experience. Um, our grief counselor here at Healing Circles Langley once showed me a, a chart of the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual uh, symptoms or challenges that grief provides. And at the time I looked at this, like 28 <laughs> symptoms. And knowing that, that that was true has really helped me in my own grief because at the beginning, I'm just floating. I'm not even on the earth there's a question, do I stay, Billy? Uh, my son luckily got food in front of me. Um, but as that shifted, I still find all of the 28 coming into play. And so what I'm needing to do in order to honor my grief is, is just what you described of that intuitive check-in. So I do that throughout the day. I come to, to my computer or I come to food or I come to anywhere and I go, 
how am I? And if I'm confused, if I'm foggy, if my memory is poor, all of these are grief symptoms. If my stomach doesn't feel well, if my soul feels heavy, those are all grief symptoms. And I now recognize that I go, oh, you're grieving and you need to not do, you need to go be with your grief. And so I do that throughout the day. And sometimes I just need a cup of tea. And sometimes I need to take the rest of the day off. And sometimes I need to take the next four days off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it's been interesting to me that I'm doing this during COVID because my normal way of getting through life's challenges as we started is to reach for the support of others. And I still have that support, but I'm finding that I need to be able to spend time companioning these different feelings, these different emotions. And that's what I'm doing. Um, But I would like to share one more thing about Kelly and the farmhouse. Because the giant surprise to me, because we've talked about how every every inner world is different. Every inner world works differently. This was Kelly's. This was mine. I found that I can go into the farmhouse. The Kelly, in fact, had prepared me in the way he prepared everything to take care of me. And even beyond his death, he still had created this place of comfort for me. And so I'd like to just share three different um, time that I've been able to do that. So right after he died, I found myself in the, in the farmhouse, Kelly on the couch, his wise Kiki on the couch, all the kids all over the place. And Kelly just holds me on the couch. And it's exactly like the scene in our living room, because there were 16 to 18 of us when Kelly died, all circling him, all ages. And so there was this feeling, yeah, uh, we can still do this. We can still hold each other. But when I went back uh, six weeks later, maybe even two months later, and tried to go to that place, the farmhouse is empty. There's no furniture. It's a white room, only Kelly in it. And I just run to him and I hug him and I just can't believe how marvelous it is to be in connection with him. And he's just as excited and that's all that exists in the world for us. And then I notice, where is everybody? And he goes, oh, they're out back, they're busy. And that starts to trigger a thing in me, like I believe it's the Buddhist tradition that you know they're with us for a while and then they move because they're gonna go be reincarnated. And there's this feeling of, oh dear, you know, I'm gonna lose this. So when I, when I went back into the farmhouse another day, I'm respectful. I'm going, well, maybe they're busy. I'm not going to just walk on in the door. I'm going to sit at the very edge of the world, the very edge of the lawn, and I'm going to just wait for somebody to show up. And one of the young girls, Teodara, comes up and says, Kiki, the wise man, wants me to take you sailing. <laughs> she takes me by the hand. She takes me down to the dock. And all of this world Kelly's created. You know, the characters, the dock, the lawn, the amethyst lake. This is all his world, but I'm in it. 
And she takes me sailing. And at one point she puts my hand on the tiller and she says, you can steer your own boat now. Mm. And I say, but no, I can't, you know, there's going to be a big storm and I'm going to capsize and I'm going to drown and I'm not going to be able to handle the big storm. And she says, no, you can steer your own boat. And besides the amethyst lake is always safe. It will never capsize you and it will never overwhelm you. And so I took that as not only Kelly saying, you know, you're okay. You will be able to do this. But also to say this inner world is not a scary place. This inner world is a place you can face tough things, but without being overwhelmed. Mm. So the last one, I'm doing my Qigong meditation and it happens to be what's called the extraordinary universe, which is what connects us beyond. And Kelly shows up, he's in a tree, he's in a tree fort. And he reminds me of the walk we had taken in the old growth forest where I felt so held by these magnificent survivors and the whole bed of roots and mycelium that nurture and hold us underneath as well as the canopy holds us on top. And then he goes, Diana, look, it doesn't matter that I'm in the tree. It doesn't matter that I have a form. The vastness of the universe will hold you. Remember those pictures that the physicists draw of the galaxies on the fabric of space and time. It will hold you. The vastness will hold you. Let's just sit with that for a minute. One of the things we do in healing circles is to trust silence. So, so Diana, let's move from this beautiful internal journey. And, and let me also say, it, as you were talking about Kelly, it just brings tears to my eyes because, and it, you know, I'm crying because um, Kelly was and is such a beautiful soul, you know, and uh, the two of you had such a beautiful marriage and your connection with each other and with your family, your children and their spouses and your grandchildren and your connections together with the whole community and what you created with Healing Circles Langley. And I also feel very called to mention David Spa, who created Healing Circles Houston and has been close to you. He, he actually had two of his wives come on the cancer help program and both of them died. So he has been through the loss that you've been through and he's somebody very beloved and, and close to us. Um, and so, um, and really, you know, I think part of the power of Healing Circles is that it's been brought together by a community of people who really love each other, you know. Um, uh, Gretchen Schode at Harmony Hill, Janie Brown at Kalanish, you know. We could go on and on with uh, Jennifer Byers, who was at Smith Center and remains a beloved part of our community. Uh, Oren Slosberg, our executive director, who's such a powerful part of it. We could just 
continue, but you are so dedicated to offering healing circles. Just tell us where you see Healing Circles Global going. What is taking place now with Healing Circles Global? Well, it's so exciting because the, the dream of Healing Circles Global you know, came to us five years ago and we've begun, we began the process of uh, meeting and, and co-creating with others. But because of the restrictions of place, it, it was difficult to have centers that enough could reach. Mm-hmm. So when COVID started and, um, and I was in the middle of my grief process and I had a Sunday afternoon where I just sobbed the whole day. And then I woke up in the morning and I go, you are an essential worker. You need to get up and you need to work. <laughs> and we got Healing Circles Langley online within a week. By, by Friday, we had 14 circles online. And this is a population that previously had been called technophobic. But I saw that everybody was willing to give it a try, was willing out of the desperation of the isolation to give technology a try. And because we had all of the hosts already, we had the structure of the website, we just needed to add in Zoom, uh, we were able to do that. And then I took four days off and cried. (laughs) And then I go, uh, wow, this is Healing Circle Global's moment too. We no longer have the restriction of space, we can, we can build something that can truly be a value to bring social support to anyone who needs it. So that's really our vision and we're just trucking towards it. Um, so in the last month, uh, by next Thursday, we'll have trained over 110 people in how to host a healing circle. And we're uh, asking those people, if they would be willing to host public facing circles. And so we hope in the next three weeks to be able to start offering public facing circles, first of all, to anyone living through this time of uncertainty, to those specifically that are grieving the loss of loved ones, to caregivers, to cancer patients, because this time is a challenging time to be a a, um, cancer patient. And most of all to, of course, the beloved healthcare workers that are getting us all through. So that's our vision. And, you know, we're just trying to reify it. (laughs) This is the time to make that real. And we just, I have to say, we just have the most wonderful people showing up at our doorstep and they're showing up from every state and they're showing up from this last training has people from Slovenia, Qatar, Scotland, France, India, um, three provinces in Canada, 13 states. So we're, we're hopeful that, in fact, we can make possible that dream. Mm. Let's just go back into the silence for a minute. Well, as the time comes to a close, a couple of people have asked uh, the name of the book again, and and they got the author right, but the book is actually called 
Prayers of the Cosmos, Prayers of the Cosmos, by Neil Douglas Klotz. And there's a foreword by Matthew Fox, and Fox says, Reader, beware. Though this book is brief, it contains the seeds of a revolution. And before I ask Diana to sing, I want to uh, briefly read you um, the um, translation of the Beatitudes. And as you all know, um, the Beatitudes um, are just a very core part of the uh, Christian tradition. So here's one possible new translation of the Beatitudes. Tuned to the source are those who live by breathing unity. Their, quote, I can, unquote, is included in God's. Blessed are those in emotional turmoil. They shall be united inside by love. Healthy are those who have softened what is rigid within. They shall receive physical vigor and strength from the universe. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for physical justice. They shall be surrounded by what is needed to sustain their bodies. Blessed are those who, from their inner wombs, birth mercy. They shall feel its warm arms embrace them. Aligned with the one are those whose lives radiate from a core of love. They shall see God everywhere. Blessed are those who plant peace each season. They shall be named the children of God. Blessings to those who are dislocated for the cause of justice. Their new home is the province of the universe. Renewal when you are reproached and driven away by the clamor of evil on all sides for my sake. Then do everything extreme, including letting your ego disappear for this is the secret of claiming your expanded home in the universe. For so they shamed those before you. All who are enraptured, saying inspired things, who produce on the outside what the Spirit has given them from within. So let's just go into the silence again for a moment. Diana, will you close for us with a song? Kind friends all gather round. There's something I would say. What brings us all together here has blessed us on its way. Love has made a circle that holds us all inside. When strangers are as family, loneliness can't hide. You must give yourself to love. Love is what you're after. 
Open up your heart to the tears and laughter and give yourself to love. Give yourself to love. Diana, beloved friend, beloved partner in the work, brings tears to my eyes. Just tears of gratitude um, for this great work and the great work all of our friends at Healing Circles Langley, Healing Circles Houston, up at Callanish, at Harmony Hill, at Smith Center for Healing in the Arts. Our friends who are starting centers in Bangkok and in India and uh, in uh, uh, Zurich and uh, uh, just all around the world. Um, just uh, what a blessing it is in these times uh, to find each other and to hold each other. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks to everybody here that listened. Yeah, we had had about 80 people who stayed with us. And I also just want to say to everyone that... um, uh, Please be sure to sign on to get the notices of uh, who's coming up. And uh, please consider doing the training uh, with HealingCirclesGlobal.org. Uh, join, join us in offering this work um, and spreading it to those with ears to hear and eyes to see. So... Um, and if you find yourself able to contribute to Healing Circles Global or to the learning community that is bringing you these morning sessions through the new school, um, it's all done on homeopathic budgets. And uh, <laughs> we welcome and need your support, um, especially grateful when you put it on a credit card and it repeats like what you might spend at Starbucks if you were able to go out to Starbucks. Uh, You know, just think about a Starbucks coffee four times a month or something like that. So anyway, bless you all. Diana, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Take care. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Diana Lindsay and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. 